You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. We are going to enter into a time of prayer. There is so much noise in our world. I was reading this week that um, the average American intake something like 50,000 words uh, a day. And so I think that if you take the, um, if you take the intake of what they're reading, what they are, um, what you're listening to, uh, emails, all of the different ways in which there is communication coming at you, um, there's rarely a time to sit in silence. So, I've got a couple prompts, but I just am praying that maybe this is the first time this week that you're going to experience a moment of silence. Um, It's been said that silence is God's first language. So whatever your posture you want to take, uh, hands open, kneeling, standing, sitting, This is a time to just hold yourself before the Lord. So let's pray. Psalm 139 says, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. And you understand my thoughts from far away. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it. Where might you feel anxiety and have yet to acknowledge to the Lord what he already knows? Do you hesitate to ask the Spirit of God for something hard, something intimate? Receive this from the Lord. This is the confidence that we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Do you feel really defeated in a certain area of life? Receive this from the Lord. 
that you, according to the riches of His glory, may be strengthened with His power in your inner being through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Is there unconfessed sin that bubbles up to the surface when you sit in the quiet? Receive this from the Lord. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then there is the story of the ten lepers, nine of who were healed and didn't come back to Jesus. One who was healed and returned to Jesus to thank him because of the joy he experienced in his healing. Where might you express thanksgiving where you have experienced joy from the Lord this week. Father, you meet us in the quiet. You desire for us to get away with you in the quiet. Help us. Help us to carve out time in our lives. To pay attention your voice does speak very loudly when we are listening 
but you are not going to force us into relationship with you. So by your Spirit's power, would you help us set aside time to just sit and receive the loving affection from you? To remember what it's like to be a child. We ask these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are two stories that dominate our world most of the time. The first is the story of futility. So obviously this past week was Halloween. And if you know anything about this neighborhood, you know there is a strange and somewhat bizarre obsession with this holiday. People don't care about Thanksgiving. They don't care about Christmas. They rarely care about Fourth of July except for the fireworks. Um, They expend all of their energy for this past Tuesday. And we have lived here for the better part of seven years, and I still cannot put my finger on why this particular holiday. But one of the things that comes with Halloween is an exorbitant amount of meaningless decorations. And here's the thing about these decorations. Someone, somewhere, is in a factory making them. You can go on Amazon, and for a mere $9, you can buy a bag of 500 mini fake plastic realistic spiders for your Halloween pranks. That's literally the title. Plastic spiders. I hope that none of you did that this week. But if you did, there is forgiveness of sins. Um, But it got me thinking, what must it be like to work in the plastic spider factory? Imagine every day going into work and making plastic spiders that get shipped to America for us to buy for one day out of the year to get a rise out of someone. Is that good work? Were we made to make plastic spiders? It seems to me that the work of making plastic spiders is futile. Because if we were being honest, I don't think we would say that being in a warehouse all day pushing a button that places the mold of legs on a mini plastic spider is meaningful work. It isn't that people that work in those jobs don't matter, but that the work itself is not meaningful. It is not good work. It is filled with futility. And whether our jobs themselves are packed with meaning or are in fact futile, we do live in the story of futility. The second story is the story of exhaustion. I will never be able to share the surprise my kids feel when they find a cicada in the grass because stopping to marvel at the cicada means I will miss my morning train. I will long for a time when I will never yell at my kids because I am late because before I know it, my boys will be grown. Four little feet jumping on the bed will be a distant memory and things like cicadas will have lost their magic and my children will be gone for good. Kristen Van Ogtrop, she was the editor of Glamour magazine and she was a working mother and she was writing on what it means to have a place, have a job in the marketplace, have a hobby and be a mom at the same time. The underlying question she is getting at is, how can you enjoy anything when you're exhausted? How can you sit back and reflect and revel in the day, the week, your kids, your life, your God, when the overwhelming sentiment is burnout? Our culture is a culture of exhaustion. We burn on double shots, speeding, crammed meetings, hurry, impatience, caffeine, and deadlines. 
And in the name of things like efficiency and expediency, the result is exhaustion. Years ago, I worked for a woman named Sally. She was young. She was passionate. She was full of ideas. She was in her late 30s and was on the fast track to the top. I have rarely, I don't think actually I've ever worked with someone who thought on her feet with such clarity and conviction. It was like a master class in high-level executive functioning. But one morning, I went to the office and checked my email and realized I was CC'd on a message. And the timestamp said 2.48 a.m. And I was young to the marketplace, but I was not crazy. 3 a.m.? But there was something more alarming. The email had a thread. 306, 318, 342, 401. Not only had an email been sent, but a significant conversation had been had in the middle of the night on email. And I was young enough and dumb enough to ask a really important question that morning on a weekly update. I got this email at 3 a.m. Do you sleep? And she replied with a sort of half-joking, half-serious remark back, what is sleep? No joke, two weeks later, I walk into her office. She looks dead. I said, you really look tired. And with a sort of existential dread, she said, it is the price you pay for good work. Is it? Is it? Is the side effect of good work you dying on the vine? To speak candidly, I looked up her career this week on LinkedIn, and since that job, she has accelerated the ranks from a director position to serving as a strategic partner to the CEO, overseeing a budget of $2.1 billion for a Fortune 500 company. So, at one level, her no-sleep tactics worked. If the goal is to ascend the ranks. And this is not to rag on her. She has just mastered the formula. She literally eats, sleeps, and breathes work. So much so that she has bukus of money and massive influence. What is the cost, though? These are the stories we are living in, the story of futility and the story of exhaustion. In futility, we ask, is this work significant and will it have a lasting impact? And in exhaustion, we ask, is the hamster wheel never ending? Is the machine just part of our world and I need to get used to it? We are in this series on our vocation, our, our calling, what we do. And we spoke about the glory of the workplace. And then we spoke last week about parenting. In two weeks, we're going to talk, talk about the vocation of neighboring. But this week, we're going to focus on the underbelly of work. There is a way forward to combat futility and exhaustion, but we have to name a reality. Work of all kind provides a significant struggle. There is a tension with us and the ground. There is difficulty with us and with work. Remember this, work is cursed. Work is not the curse. Work is cursed. Work is not the curse. In the wake of human depravity, our work carries a level of friction. And in the wake of the brokenness of the world, work is not equitable, charitable, and full of joy. It is marked by a mixed bag of real satisfaction and overt frustration. Just name it. We don't live in what is known as the majority world. And so when we feel friction... And when we feel tension in our jobs, we think for whatever reason that it should not be that way. And I'm speaking to the majority of us who have white collar gigs. The majority world is marked by struggle. <clears throat> Working all day out in a field to live off a couple bucks that puts food on the table for that evening. And those who have enough ambition to pick up and move their entire family to a more urban setting end up working in factories where they are highly disconnected from the product they are producing. This is the effect of the fall. Now, this is probably not your situation, but you still feel the fallout of the fall, especially in your work. 
because you feel it personally, you're unfulfilled, you're unproductive, you're lazy. Or maybe you just have a general sentiment of apathy about work. It's a job, you do it, you come home, you sleep, you repeat. And maybe the highlight of your job is the Friday afternoon drive home and the dreaded part is the drive in on Monday morning. Or you feel it interpersonally. Your team is difficult to work with or manage. Your supervisor is either overly demanding or completely checked out. You feel like the culture is built on gossip and criticism. Nothing ever comes without some sort of relational cost. Or you feel it corporately. Maybe you're not even sure you believe in the job you're doing. Or maybe you've seen how the sausage is made and you're realizing that none of what was shared in your first interview is your experience. And maybe you're asked to endorse something that's unethical. Or maybe you're navigating the world of significant cultural issues and every conversation is another thorn and a reminder that you are the only one in your workplace who holds to a biblical ethic of sex, money, gender, politics, fill in the blank, and it's just really lonely. All of these would be normal experiences. The effects of the fall permeate everything, especially the ground we work on. This is Genesis 3.18. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Your 9 to 5 is not a realm for your personal fulfillment or self-actualization. If you find a job that leads to a career that lands you in a place for 30 years and you move up the ladder and find great joy in what you are doing 90% of the time, you are in the vast minority. The fact that your 9 to 5 should be a place for self-fulfillment is an American myth. And it applies at best to people who are born with a high genetic intellect something they don't have any control over, a network of supportive adults, also something they don't really have control over, and access to an elite education, also something they don't really have control over. See, Western culture, ex culture exalts many things, and one of those many things is choosing. We worship choice. But God appoints places for his people. The norm is actually to stay there unless God grants us the freedom to move. And in one sense, our callings are well beyond our control because they come from external sources. From the outside, God gives us gifts and God gives us opportunities. We do not simply go out and choose our vocation. We look for appealing work. And hope it's a calling, but we also find our calling by working where we are. And whether we move or not, and whether we reform our workplace or not, the invitation is to approach it like this. This is my work, the place the Lord has assigned. And when in distress, we should not think first of a new job or a new city or a new marriage. The great factors for happiness in any place are the Lord's direction and our character. And God is everywhere, and we take ourselves wherever we go. See, self-fulfillment is not what marks us. Faithfulness is what marks us. And it is most evident that when we are in a place that pushes against our idea of being happy in our job most of the time, we are marked by faithfulness. And to combat a world that is constantly searching for meaning and a dopamine kick and existential satisfaction in the workplace, God gives us the gift of faithful, faithfulness and contentment. Of course, the other side is true as well. Because of the fall, we might not struggle with the idea of disliking our jobs, but idolizing them. And it might not be that we find it to the most fulfilling work, find it to be the most fulfilling work, but that we find it to be a really helpful distraction from the other callings of our life. You don't typically work 60 hours a week if you have not first settled into 50-hour work weeks. 
Sometimes it is easier to solve a budgeting problem than it is to solve a marital problem. And sometimes it's easier to manage a classroom than it is to manage your own child. What lurks over our head like a hawk is the belief that I will amount to nothing. And so to compensate for the lie, I'm believing I will make myself into something. And to combat a world of both futility and exhaustion, God gives us the gift of rest. On the very first page of the scripture, we see that God rested in Genesis 2. We read, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. The omnipotent God who doesn't sleep and the ever-present God who never tires rested. God does not need a vacation or PTO or the weekend. And yet, one of the core realities about his existence is that he rested. God created and works, so we create and work. And God rests and delights, so we delight and rest. And rest is rooted in two places. It's rooted in the literal created world, and it's rooted in resistance. So... When you read Genesis 1, there is a rhythm, right? There was evening and there was morning one day. There was evening and there was morning the next day. And so on and so forth for six days. And I want to let Eugene Peterson explain this to you because he paints a dazzling picture for us. This is kind of a long quote. It's worth it. So hang with me. The whole thing is not going to be up on the screen. Only the punchy parts. Maybe. This is the Hebrew way of understanding day. It is not ours. American days, most of them anyway, begin with an alarm clock ripping the pre-dawn darkness. And they close, not with evening, but several hours past that when we turn off the lights. In conventional references to day... We do not include the night hours except for the two or three that we steal from either end to give us more time to work. Because our definition of day is so different, we make an imaginative effort to understand the Hebrew phrase evening and morning as one day. But more than idiomatic speech is involved, there is a sense of rhythm. Day is the basic unit of God's creative work. And evening is the beginning of that day. It is the onset of God speaking light, stars, earth, animals, vegetation, woman, and man into being. But evening is also the time when we quit our activity and go to sleep. When it is evening, I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep and drift off into unconsciousness for the next six or eight or ten hours, a state in which I am absolutely non-productive and have no cash value. And then I wake up, rested, jump out of bed, full of energy, grab a cup of coffee, rush out the door to get things started. And the first thing I discover is that everything was started hours ago. All the important things got underway while I was fast asleep. And when I dash into the workday, I walk into an operation that is half over already. I enter into work in which the basic plan is already established, the assignments given, the operation is in motion. Sometimes, still in a stupor, I blunder into the middle of something that is nearly done and go to work thinking that I am starting it. But when I do, I interfere with what is already far along on its way to completion. My sincere intentions while I work make it no less of a blunder and an aggravation. The sensible thing to ask is, where do I fit? Where do you need an extra hand? What still needs to be done? But the Hebrew evening morning sequence conditions us to the rhythm of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. And as we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake and are called out to participate in God's creative action. We respond in faith and work. But always grace is previous. Grace 
is primary. We wake into a world we didn't make, into a salvation we didn't earn. Evening, God begins without our help, His creative day. Morning, God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work He initiated. Creation and covenant are sheer grace, and they are there to greet us every morning. George MacDonald once wrote, and this is not on here, but I want you to listen to this. He once wrote that sleep is God's contrivance for giving us the help he cannot get into us when we are awake. Sleep is God's contrivance for giving us the help he cannot get into us when we are awake. And as the Genesis rhythm works in me, I also discover something else. When I quit my day's work, nothing essential stops. I prepare for sleep, not with a feeling of exhausted frustration because there is so much yet to do, but actually with expectancy. The day is about to begin. God's Genesis words are about to be spoken again during the hours of my sleep. How will he prepare to use my obedience, service, and speech when morning breaks? I go to sleep to get out of the way for a while. I get into the rhythm of salvation. And while we sleep, great and marvelous things far beyond our capacity to invent or engineer are in process. The moon is marking its seasons. The lion is roaring for its prey. The earthworms are aerating the earth. The stars are turning in their courses. The proteins are repairing our muscles. Our dreaming brains restore a deeper sanity beneath the gossip and the scheming of our waking hours. Our work settles into the context of God's work. And we experience this grace with our bodies before we apprehend it with our minds. We are attending to a matter of physical and spiritual technology, not ideas, not doctrines, not virtues. We are getting our bodies into a Genesis rhythm. And Sabbath extrapolates this basic daily rhythm into the larger context of the month. The turning of the earth on its axis gives us the basic two-beat rhythm, evening, morning. The moon in its orbit introduces another rhythm, the 28-day month, marked by four phases of seven days. It is this larger rhythm, the rhythm of the seventh day, that we are commanded to observe. Sabbath-keeping presumes the daily rhythm, evening, morning. We can hardly avoid stopping our work each night as fatigue and sleep overtake us, but we can avoid stopping work on the seventh day, especially if things are gaining momentum. Keeping the weekly rhythm requires deliberate action. Sabbath keeping often feels like an interruption, an interference with our productive routines. It challenges assumptions we gradually build up that our daily work is indispensable in making the world go. And then we find that it is not an interruption, but a more spacious rhythmic measure that confirms and extends the basic beat, evening, morning. Rest is literally built into the way the world is wired. Sabbath is featured on the first week, and every day and every week we are reminded of one simple thing. We are limited. And maybe unbeknownst to you, your limits and my limits are God's great gift to us. For those of you who feel like you are what you accomplish, the Sabbath is the reminder that you intentionally accomplish nothing and God still loves you. For those of you who feel like the metric of your success at work is the marker of your identity, the Sabbath is the reminder that while you intentionally accomplish nothing, God is intentionally loving you. Our bodies tell us every evening you are not what you produce, and our calendars tell us every week your work is good and you get to enjoy the world God made one day a week for the rest of your life. 
Sabbath rest is rooted in creation and it's literally hardwired into our bodies. God calls the Sabbath holy. He's calling our most precious commodity, which is time. He calls it set apart and distinct. One day every week set apart to recalibrate our minds and our bodies and our souls that what we crave is not found in the world of production, but actually in the world of time, in God himself. God is not a workaholic. He is not addicted to production. He is the freest being who ever lived. And the inverse of rest is also true. In uh, his book, Emotionally Healthy Leader, Pete Scazzaro quotes a friend of his named Sam Lamb. Sam is a managing partner of a company called Linkage. He's part of a program called Linkage Conversations at Harvard, where he helps students who are top execs maximize their productivity and output by learning from other leaders. And most of them are fairly hard-driving, high-functioning people. And Sam says that whether they are Christians or not, all of them constantly violate their limits. He says the question is not how many hours a week do you work, But what do you do with Sabbath? And he writes this, if you do not keep the Sabbath, God will keep it for you. If you do not keep the Sabbath, God will keep it for you. I don't know how factual that is, but it feels true. And honestly, it feels true because of my own personal experience. Here's what that's implying. If we do not keep the Sabbath, a regular system of rest, we are incurring a deficit upon ourselves that will inevitably come through crisis, health condition, emergency, or burnout. The Sabbath is not meant for you to check off. It's meant to be a means for salvation, a way for your mind, body, and soul to remember grace, limits, humanity, finiteness. It is not intended for you to be a good Christian. It's intended for you to remember the good news of God starts with grace. The good news is that the first day of the week is not Monday. It is Sunday. It is not earnings, but ever flowing love. So it's rooted in creation, but it's also rooted in resistance. The ghost of Pharaoh haunts us terribly. We read in Genesis that God rested and we read in Deuteronomy one of the reasons God invites us to rest. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So in Egypt, slaves don't get a Sabbath. Slaves are a commodity to be used. They accomplish the bottom line and the end goal. It's the least amount of cost and the most amount of profit. And in Egypt, the Israelites were slaves. And slaves are not free. Rest is followed by freedom. But where there is no freedom, there is no rest. Go back and read Exodus. The currency that Pharaoh and Egypt ran on was the currency of more. Unfortunate newsflash, little has changed. America is no different than Egypt. It's probably worse in some respects. And we as followers of Jesus have an opportunity to say no to more. We're entering the holiday season. And that is the message of every advertisement, more. I need to make more money, which means I need to work more so that I can gain more. No, no, you don't because you are not a slave to the evils to some, not all, but you are not a slave to some of the evils of capitalism. And I am fine with capitalism, but you're not a slave to it. You are a slave to righteousness. You are a child of God and a co-ruler with the king. You don't have to bow to the principalities that keep whispering in your ear. You need that. Abraham Heschel is a Jewish writer and he says, There is happiness in the love of labor, but there is misery in the love of gain. 
more is not it. There has been a handful of studies done around Olympic athletes. What makes them great? What distinguishes them from just the great athletes? What's different from the great athlete and the Olympian? The amount of work great athletes and great Olympians put in is fairly identical. Studies have shown. The difference is how they rest. Literally, Olympians, the training regimen is super difficult and then it is unbelievably restful, giving their bodies a physical day off where they don't touch weights, they don't touch food, and the mental and emotional capacity they now have to re-enter their training regimen versus the athlete who just pounds seven days a week is what stops that athlete from being an Olympian. How much more for a human being made in the image of God, the God who rests, who stops, who breathes, and who remembers that they are not the execution of the to-do list, but the Imago Dei. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is not a burden. It is actually a blessing. It is not a have to. It is a get to. More money and more stuff and more influence and more happiness is not it. And we will constantly wrestle with the holy ache in this life. But holy discontentment and envy are not the same thing. Holy discontentment says, I long for the coming kingdom. Envy says, I long for more of that person's stuff, life, experiences, relationships, etc. By the way, this is the stuff that social media runs on. It runs on a competition of envy. I see the life of another that I want. How do I get that life? And it is a constant feed of posting mere mirages of what people want their life to look like and what they hope others envy about them. More. And let me just be really honest. I actually sincerely struggle here. I am not preaching rest from a place of expertise, but from a place of personal challenge, arguably personal failure. It can be hard to not work and potentially even harder to really rest. And I mean rest, I don't mean leisure. Andy Crouch defines the terms this way. Work is the glad improvement of the world. Rest is the glad contemplation of the fruits of improving the world. So in describing how technology has taken captive our minds and bodies and souls, he says that we have moved from work and rest being the primary experience of human beings throughout the centuries to toil and leisure being our primary experience. Toil, the feeling of constant fruitless work. And leisure, exhausted attempts to reclaim a sense of restedness, which usually ends up in an escape from toil that leads us to entertainment and distraction. And here's the thing. Leisure is not restorative like rest is. Why read a book when I can watch Netflix? And why take a walk when I can veg out? And why cook a meal when I can order takeout? And Netflix and relaxing and restaurants aren't bad. It's more of a realization of the wrestle between what is refueling my soul and body and mind versus what is a quick and easy escape because I am exhausted. What is more life-giving, sitting down and binging the latest streaming show or sitting down with friends over a fire? Ordering DoorDash or making a meal that was not created in a ghost kitchen and then enjoying the fruit of your labor? What if you walked into the office or the classroom or the patient's bedside on Monday morning actually rejuvenated? Not because you know that today's work is going to be unbelievably fulfilling, but because you have rested in the delight of God's good world. Leisure does not produce joy. Rest does. And so with the voice of the Israelites behind us, we practice rest as a form of resisting the pull and power and addiction to more. And then finally, our witness and our future. 
Your witness at your job is taking the excellence of something and displaying something redemptive in the workplace. So the way you work says something about God. And the work you do says something about God. And your outlook on work says that God calls us to work and that our work is also not God. And your interactions with your peers says that the lowest person on the org chart holds the same level of worth as you do. Here is what I want for you. The great message that you give people with your work and the great banner you wave over the way you work is this thing is not about you. Your work is not about you being fulfilled. If you find personal fulfillment in your work, amazing. But your work is a witness to the God who works. And your work is a testimony to the day when all work will be renewed and restored. Do you remember during the height of the pandemic, we started categorizing jobs as non-essential and essential? And the point was that people that are on the front lines of this medical war have very critical jobs. And the rest of us have less critical jobs, at least in the moment. But this was not the first time in history people have wrestled with that question, is my job essential? During World War II, both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien discussed the idea that fantasy novels don't exactly fight the Nazis. And during the war, Tolkien feared that he would never finish his Lord of the Rings trilogy. So he wrote a little essay called Leaf by Niggle. And Niggle's life project was to paint a tree. He had a glorious vision for this tree, but as his name suggests, he did not get much done because he labored over very small details. And all he ever managed to paint was a single leaf. And Niggle would catch a cold and die on a train. And on his way to heaven, he peers out his window and sees his tree. It's not entirely what he envisioned, but it is his tree built from his leaf, and it's finally complete. Tolkien's essay is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. Because of the resurrection, we do not labor in vain. Because what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable because death is defeated. Because we will be raised with physical bodies that sing, laugh, dance, cook, and eat. Our work is not vanity. It will actually endure. Most of us, if we're honest, are going to barely sketch out a single leaf in our efforts to paint a tree with our life. But this does not diminish our contribution. Your labor is not insignificant. If you have ever experienced the joy of a completed project, of closing a sale, of a successful presentation, of a productive board meeting, of a well-run event, of an adult child flourishing in the world, you know in your soul that you were made to work. Your work is cursed, but it's not the curse. The future, by the way, is work. Whatever you believe heaven to be, whatever you believe the new earth to be, biblical theology tells us there will be work. It will just not be marked by strain. It will not be littered with poor management and malpractice insurance. There won't be litigations or firings or the need for ibuprofen. And there will be jobs that thankfully will no longer exist. Firemen and the insurance agent and the prison guard and the neurosurgeon. Those jobs, gone. But there will be work. This is what the prophet Amos said. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say what's on here. Listen to this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. All the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. That is metaphorical and that is literal. What reason is there to think that music and cooking and craftsmanship and engineering and art and athletics will end? Given We will have resurrected bodies and that God has designed our bodies for action. We should expect to find pleasure and exertion 
as well as eating and drinking and singing and creating with our hands. We can call work a miserable business and say we are enduring it for a paycheck. And we can, by the Spirit's power, strive to glimpse the way our toil participates in God's plan to heal the world. And in the moments where you feel your work is the most mundane and tedious and tiresome, I want you to remember this by G.K. Chesterton. Because children have abounding vitality. And because they are in spirit fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Yesterday morning, I got up to do my Saturday morning ritual, which is to make a fire. And for the first 30 minutes, I watched the sun come up. But then the wind shifted. And so I moved spots. And for the next 30 minutes, I could see the moon with as much clarity as I've ever seen it at 7 o'clock in the morning because there was not a cloud in the sky. And my prayer was, God, you have been making the sun and moon rise up and set for a bazillion years. And you are not bored. In fact, when you see it, you just have one word. And it is glory. That is God at work. And that is the invitation for us. God is with us at work. Inviting us sometimes into the monotony of glory. May we become like Jesus strong enough to exult in that monotony. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.